Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Tuesday, January 9th. I'm Hannah Floor. The passengers of Alaska Airlines Flight 1282 were lucky to land safely in Portland after the wall next to seat 26A blew out in flight. The potential of what might have been resonates especially among Alaskans, who take more flights per year than most Americans and rely substantially on Alaska Airlines. A flightaware.com search of the tail number of the 737 MAX 9 from the Friday incident shows that the aircraft flew round-trip from Seattle to Ketchikan on December 7th, the day Alaska Airlines first saw an auto-pressurization warning light illuminate. It's not clear the warning light is related to the mishap Friday, which National Transportation Safety Board Chair Jennifer Homendy described at a media briefing as an explosive decompression. It's certainly a concern. Uh, and it's one that we want to dig into uh, and look at what occurred there. Uh, and if there is any relation at all or correlation to what occurred uh, on this event, we don't know that at this time. Alaska Airlines later decided to restrict the airline from flying over oceans. But between December 7th and that restriction, the plane flew three times between Honolulu and Anchorage on December 18th, 24th and 26th and made several trips between Seattle and Anchorage. In the Friday incident, the aircraft aircraft lost a section known as a door plug, a panel filling the space where an emergency door could be located in a different airplane configuration. Monday, United Airlines reported finding loose bolts securing the door plugs on several of its 737 MAX 9 aircraft. All MAX 9s in the U.S. are now grounded. Alaska Airlines said it canceled approximately 140 flights yesterday, or about 15% of its normal schedule. A spokesman said only six of the canceled flights were to or from airports in Alaska. Hammondy, the National Transportation Safety Board chair, said that parts of several seats flew out of the hole in the aircraft Friday, as did the tray table at the back of seat 26A. The seats in 26 and 20A, 25 were torqued, um, and there was a lot of damage to the interior paneling trim. Um, so, uh, you know, my impression uh, when I saw that is it must have been a terrifying event to experience. All but seven seats on the plane were occupied, but not the two closest to the blowout. There will be several new faces on the Petersburg Indian Association Tribal Council after yesterday's election. Four candidates challenging incumbents for seats on the council beat their opponents. The four challengers ran on a united ticket. Deborah O'Gara will be the new council president. She received 74 votes, while incumbent president Chris Morrison received 33 votes. Incumbents Brenda Norheim, Mary Ann Rainey, and Mark Martinson lost their council seats to challengers Nathan Lopez, Jeanette Ness, and Everett Bennett by similar margins. Heather Kahn is the only incumbent to keep her seat, winning with 67 votes. Voter turnout was exceptional. More than 100 tribal members voted in the election. That's about four times as many as last year. The high turnout could be in part because early voting was an option for the first time this year with four early voting days during the month of December. The election will be canvassed Thursday, January 11th. The next Tribal Council board meeting is Wednesday, January 17th at 5 p.m. The meeting will be held in the conference room at the Petersburg Indian Association building at 15 12th Street. 
A bill before the Alaska legislature aims to help working families move off of food stamps by allowing their incomes to rise while benefiting from the program. Alaska is currently one of seven states that require food stamp recipients to remain below an income cap. Robin reports from Fairbanks. House Bill 196 adds one sentence to Alaska's SNAP statute. That's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. The food stamp bill is co-sponsored by Fairbanks Representative Maxine Dybert. It helps working families by eliminating a benefits cliff as their earnings rise. That benefits cliff is an earnings cap the legislation would increase. And it just allows one to ramp up so that you can get a better job with some supports. Currently, Alaska SNAP's gross income limit is 130% of Alaska's poverty level. That's about $4,000 per month for a family of four. That means if a SNAP recipient earns a couple more dollars in their paycheck, they could lose their benefits, potentially more than they gain. The bill would also raise the gross income eligibility for SNAP from 130% to 200% of poverty level. For Hannah Hill, who directs the breadline in Fairbanks, the change would remove one of several problems with a state's food stamp system. This last backlog, we saw 12,000 Alaskans not able to access SNAP, and that's coming out of an administrative issue at the state level. And they're working through some real difficulties. There's not enough staff. There's not enough funding. They're using a phenomenally outdated computer system. So they have some real challenges that will take, ultimately, actual money to address But in the meantime, the people that are being harmed by that are the folks who are already most vulnerable in our communities. The legislation would also eliminate something called the asset test. A family of four can't have money in the bank exceeding about $2,000. Dybert says that penalizes savings. People want to save, so you save, put money into your savings. You can't, so that's disheartening for anyone. I mean, don't we all want a savings account? (laughs) The law also restricts SNAP recipients to one vehicle, a stipulation Dybert says can inhibit subsistence fishing and hunting. If you have a four-wheeler or a boat to do your hunting and traveling, those are assets. You make too much. Forty-one other states have enacted legislation improving broad-based categorical eligibility. Hill says advocates across the state, like Food Bank of Alaska and the Alaska Food Coalition, are pushing the bill. Because it's a no-cost measure to remove some of the administrative burden for this process. So it's, it's like you don't get much more win-win than this. House Bill 196 is sponsored by Democratic Representative Genevieve Mina of Anchorage. There's a Senate companion, SB 149, sponsored by Republican Senator Kathy Giesel of Anchorage. Giesel and Mina wrote together about the bill last fall, saying it aligns with the governor's Family First initiative by reducing hunger for Alaska's families and seniors. In Fairbanks, I'm Robin. Five Finger Lighthouse has helped mariners navigate Frederick Sound for over a century, but now it also serves an educational purpose. Every summer, the remote lighthouse draws in scores of visitors who want to learn more about the unique history and ecology of Five Finger Island. KFSK's Shelby Herbert jumped on a boat to the lighthouse this fall to shine a light on some of its new features. Five Finger Lighthouse Society Director Jeff Erickson is skiffing a group of volunteers and me to Five Finger Island. Been on a boat before? Mm, couple times. <laughs> he pilots his boat away from Petersburg's South Harbor and into the thick mist hanging over the Frederick Sound. 
It's a long way out to the island, which is located about halfway to Juneau. The trip takes a couple hours on calm seas, and the boat rumbles on and on over the glassy surface of the water. There's not much to look at. The mountains are blanketed in fog, but that gray monotony doesn't last forever. Because almost out of nowhere, Erickson has to cut the engine, even though the island is nowhere in sight. He's braking for a pod of whales. The passengers poke their heads outside the cabin to marvel at them. Not long after, the lighthouse comes into focus. Erickson anchors next to a sheer cliff, and we start unloading gear for the people staying at the lighthouse. The keepers, crates of food, amenities, and pieces of what is to become their new heating system. Lighthouse keepers Brianna and Don Drury come out to meet us. They're married, both from Oklahoma. They're both still working remotely, using Starlink to connect with the outside world. And they're also working on the lighthouse itself. Oh, there is a lot of work that needs to be done around here. Uh, tons of projects. We've been working on um, the solar array and the batteries, uh, water pumps, and tracing down electrical issues, and just general cleaning. Today, the lighthouse's beacon is automated by the U.S. Coast Guard. So Brianna and Don don't actually have to be around to keep it lit. But the keepers and a group of volunteers from Petersburg are working hard to keep the structure intact and ready for visitors. Brianna and Don say this gig offers a nice escape from the frustrations of day-to-day -day life. But there's still plenty to do out here and plenty of chores. Among their least favorite, managing all their waste. It all has to go out on a boat from the Five Finger Lighthouse Society, which only stops by every couple weeks. But Brianna says, for the experience they're getting, it's all worth it, down to the last ounce of trash. I mean, I think it's the most beautiful place on the planet. So when um, the board said they needed lighthouse keepers for three weeks at the end of the season, we said, absolutely. <laughs> Another one of their duties is to greet visitors who occasionally come in off the cruise ships and show them around. Yeah, you know, we're, we're new to the job, so we actually haven't had visitors come ashore yet, except mm -hmm. you all. But yeah, so showing visitors around, giving them the history, you know, asking them to help support because this is entirely, you know, it's a nonprofit. So if we don't have the money to fix something, it doesn't get fixed. Brianna says it takes a unique type of person to step up for the job. If you enjoy solitude and if you enjoy whale watching and MacGyvering, this is the job for you. <laughs> the Drury's can tolerate cobbling together complicated mechanical equipment, but the real draw for them is the environment. The waters around the lighthouse are teeming with marine life, and the whales are the star of the show here. Brianna says the best place to whale watch is from the island's helipad. We climb up the wooden scaffolding, where we find Don chatting up a pot of humpbacks in the distance. Remember Moby Dick? There's like 10 of them out there right yeah. now. Brianna says the helipad isn't just the best place to see whales. It's also the best place to hear them. These just massive animals making these deep, just kind of primal, primordial sounds. Like, yeah, it's amazing. Despite all the natural beauty around her, Brianna admits that the spot sometimes feels a little eerie. 
Author Sue Henry wrote a murder mystery novel about it, titled Murder at Five Finger Light. Unlike the characters in Henry's novel, visitors probably won't stumble upon a hidden corpse on the premises, but they might find some hidden treasure. There's a geocache tucked into a hollowed-out tree next to a steep cliff. Geocache. No, can you, there's a geocache all the way out here? Yes, there is. Oh, my gosh. You must have some very serious hobbyists coming out here. That's amazing. Yeah, I think this is probably one of the more difficult ones to get to. And if people are just, you know, trying to follow the coordinates. We've heard stories of people, you know, trying to land there and scramble up this. And st- yeah. You're they're kidding. Just, they're, they're just following the, the GPS coordinates and not actually looking around the island for where to anchor or come ashore. Most remote geocache ever heard of. It looks like there's a logbook. Last entry was in 2021. So folks are still geocaching (laughs) out at Five Finger. That's incredible. A carabiner, a shell. Good deal. Wow. Brianna leads the way back to the lighthouse, pointing out edible plants along the trail. Those are your thimbleberries? Oh, thank you. Cool. It's so sweet. It's so delicate. Yeah, it's like you've already prepared it for a pie or something. Mm -hmm. Like you don't even need to add sugar. It's very... It's a sweet end of the day, especially for the volunteers who, after a lot of sweat and maybe even a few tears of frustration, successfully installed a new boiler system. And the fruit of their labor, funded by community donations and a Rasmussen grant, means that the structure has a more reliable heat source that will protect it from humidity and mold. Jeff Erickson says the upgrade means a lot for the future of the Five Finger Lighthouse. The boiler's hooked up and we got heat in the lighthouse, which was a big accomplishment. It's it's never been hooked up, so it's a really exciting day for us. For most of the winter, the lighthouse sits empty, but that could change soon. Erickson says the new heating system could allow them to keep their keepers longer into the fall and start the season earlier in the spring. And that means more opportunities for them to share its haunting beauty and hidden treasures with the outside world. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. Trident Seafoods is moving forward with plans to replace its bunkhouse dock near its processing plant in Kodiak. As despite the company announcing it would sell the facility last month. Alexis Telfer is the vice president of Trident's Global Communications. She says the dock repair project has been in the works for a long time and they're following through with the process. We demolished the bunkhouse, um, I want to say about mid-year last year in 2023, and we had planned to demolish the, the dock and replace the pilings in the dock, as I say, in October, and we were just waiting on permits. Trident's construction plans include replacing a few dozen pilings near the facility. Several marine mammals, like sea lions and orcas, can often be found swimming by the docks in the near island channel. The company is currently working with the National Marine Fisheries Service on their plans to mitigate animal injuries, but permit potential harassment during the construction. Construction is expected to begin in March. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor.